Greetings, Muriel's Murders family. Thanks for pressing play and tuning in. We've got a new hot pod summer ahead for you. Plenty, plenty of new episodes, and yes, they are hot, coming uh, out every week starting next week. Today, we're re-airing one of our greatest hits from The Vault, originally released over two years ago. The story of Edmund Creffield and the Holy Rollers cult is still one of our absolute favorite uh, you know, episodes we've done on a personal level. So stick around and enjoy that. We also want to announce if you're listening on Spotify, you can now subscribe to Muriel's Murders exclusive episodes directly through Spotify for five bucks a month. That subscription does not give you access to the back catalog of exclusive episodes. For those puppies, please consider joining our Patreon instead of subscribing through Spotify. But going forward, all our new exclusive episodes will be available on Spotify as well as on Patreon, as always. Great way to support our show and get sweet bonus episodes. We got a banger for you next week, guys, so stay tuned. We cannot wait to be on your earbuds. Okay, and also, speaking of earbuds, I'm happy to announce that another podcast I helped produce for the last year is now finally available for those earbuds, The Good Stuff Podcast. The show is very special to me. I'll be talking about bit more about it in, you know, future Murals Murders episodes. It was a big co-production between iHeart, Q Code Media, and Bradley Cooper's production company, Leah Pictures, and is hosted by Jacob and Ashley Schick, who are my new bestie soulmates. Jake and Ashley are deeply committed in their work to combat suicide in the veteran community and beyond, and their mission with the Good Stuff podcast was to spread real-life, uplifting stories from people from all walks of life, overcoming hardships and traumas, we all wanted this show to be a celebration of life, and I think we really accomplished it. I'm super into it. Our most recent guest was a friend of mine who I've known since preschool, Maya Scott. We're about five episodes in right now, and Maya's episode is particularly meaningful to me. It's available right now, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, so you can check out The Good Stuff podcast whenever you feel like it when you need that kind of thing in your life we're also going to insert the good stuff podcast trailer right now just so you can uh, catch the vibe of the show and then after that we're going to launch right into one of our all-time favorite episodes edmund creffield and the holy rollers cult so stick around enjoy your day we love you and we'll see you next week with a fresh new episode welcome to the good stuff I'm Jacob Schick, a third-generation combat Marine. I'm his wife, Ashley Schick, a Gold Star granddaughter and proud co-host of our show. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey as we get to tell stories of inspiration and perseverance. Our guests range from some of my fellow warriors to NFL cheerleaders to extreme sports legends to New York City firefighters who survived 9-11. From one of the strongest women I know, Mama Judy Littlefield, to UFC Hall of Famer Randy Couture. I walked on a wrestling mat hoping to get a deadbeat dad's attention and it didn't work. We found out the shooter had been taken into custody before we ever found out that Chad was the other man down. I cried because I wanted my mom to be what I thought was the version of normal, <laughs> a normal mom and I just knew she wasn't and she's sitting there doing drugs. The debris came down and I didn't have an air pack and I had my nose to the ground and I'm saying, no, this isn't gonna end like this. We believe everyone's got a story worth telling, not only about the peaks, but more importantly about the valleys and what's gotten them where they are today. We can't afford to get better over this. We're gonna have to get better. Every single person I meet is better at something than I am. 
And with an open heart and an open mind, I have an opportunity to learn what that is and learn from that person. Discipline, the hard work, to finally be chosen and to know you made it, there really is nothing like it. We can do whatever we want in this life. And there's never been a better time to be alive than right now. From Leah Pictures, Q Code Media, and iHeartRadio. Welcome to The Good Stuff. Listen to The Good Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we go back to the early 1900s to talk about the rise and fall of the Holy Rollers cult, famous for sex, murder, I thought you would react, (laughs) and wait for it, rolling around on the ground. (laughs) Okay. You thought I would really uh, get crazy when you said sex? Yeah. Oh my God, it's about sex. Tell me (laughs) everything, Muriel. I'm so excited. Don't try to act like I don't have your number. Yeah. All right. Now, Nick, like I said, how do you feel about the content of this one? I feel pretty good about this. I'm, uh, you know, intrigued about cults. Mm -hmm. It sounds old school and old timey. Yeah, it is. And rolling around the ground. um, I can't say I'm against it. So I would say I'm feeling pretty open to whatever this tale may be. This boy is open for the poking. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, remember, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. And I'm sure some swear words will escape our sweet, sweet lips, so please consider yourself warned. Mm -hmm. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. Okay, Muriel, I am indeed a consenting adult husband, so I am ready to hear this true crime tale. Well, my guess is that you are going to roll over to the other side and like true crime (laughs) at the end of this. Okay, all right. You're very hyped. Uh, Okay, let's get into it. Okay, great. So this story begins in Corvallis, Oregon in the early 1900s. Uh, and it starts with a man named Franz Edmund Creffield. Okay. So right. he came to Corvallis, Oregon in 1902 as a Salvation Army preacher. Uh-huh. In 1886, like the like late 1800s, yeah. the Salvation Army was targeting the Pacific Northwest, where if you don't know this listener... That's where Nick and I are from. We're yes. from Seattle. Yes, uh, raised in Seattle. We and are. I've been to Corvallis too. I yeah. think we went to a film festival together there. We absolutely did yeah, yeah, when yeah. we first started dating. I remember it fondly. Well, the Salvation Army targeted the Pacific Northwest for its missionary work because of its, quote, extreme godlessness. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay, great. There's something fu- very funny about the word extreme in that context. Yeah, I think it had something to do with panhandlers or people who are miners or working in the hills. Oh, so they were just kind of poor and didn't have a lot. And they were like, these no, godless people are it was satanic. A hor- it was whoring and uh, drinking. and uh, <laughs> Oh, it's all the fun stuff. Yeah. Okay, it so it's like the, the, good, fun stuff. the good kind of it's godlessness. The old-timey fun stuff. Okay, right? great. But that's how Franz Creffield came to Corvallis, Oregon, because he was a preacher. Okay. He's German-born. He's a kind of a strong 
German accent. He was 35, blonde, very smooth shaven, and pretty small, like a small guy, uh-huh. maybe about five foot three. Okay. He spent about a year in Corvallis, Oregon, and then he kind of disappeared. He was either quit or he fired, for, got fired from his Salvation Army uh-huh. gig, and he wandered around being this traveling Pentecostal preacher, which is like, a, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get into the religions. I know some about them, but then yeah. I always mix them up. And my mistakes are always like really scandalous. I feel like <laughs> just offending people left and right. I said something. I mixed up Presbyterian and Protestant to my mother. Yeah. who's neither. And she was like, those are completely different. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, my bad. Sorry. Okay. Uh, but he Pente- was Pentecostal is like a yelling one okay a more like evangelist <laughs> yelling one i think that they're more about feeling and yelling than reading that's my, mm-hmm. my so the bet. holy spirit is something to be felt and experienced not studied or understood that's i that's my impression but don't hold me to that okay. that's kind of my impression of, of what that's about but anyway he traveled around corvallis for about a year just disappeared just traveling rogue evangelist mm-hmm. preacher okay growing out his hair and his beard which Ooh. became a signature look for him nice because you can't be a prophet really with like a bald ass face right i currently have been growing my hair out since the pandemic began haven't shaved my face haven't cut my hair i relate entirely <laughs> you really do look pretty crazy <laughs> so he comes back at the end of 1903 to corvallis oregon and he immediately starts attracting his first followers who are mostly defects from the Salvation Army. Uh-huh. The original followers are going to have a really big part to play in the story. So I'm going to give you some names, but just try to remember these. I will try. Okay. Yes. I'm not good at this, but I will put in some effort. I think you're so good at this. <laughs> All right. So among the first to convert were members of the Hurt family. So that is a very important family. Okay. 22-year-old Maud Hurt, 21-year-old Frank 16-year-old Eva May and their mother, Sarah. Sarah's important. Okay. The Hurt family patriarch, Orlando Victor, or O.V. Hurt, Uh was a really well-respected member of the community. Mm -hmm. He didn't love Craftfield, but he went along with these preachings. Right. His whole family wanted to go. Right. His wife and his daughters are super into it. His wife was really into it. Okay, great. So he did have a few families. He also recruited the Mitchell sisters, who didn't really have a strong family unit. Uh-huh. So they were a little free floaters. Uh, Donna, 23, and Esther, who was 15. So their mother died when they were really young and their father left all of his seven children in the care of others and dipped. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that happened so much, but it was just like, oh yeah, that's how we do things. Yeah, but right. you're like, what? He just, <laughs> he just left him? Uh, so Great. he's out of the picture. Okay. Donna was happily married to a man named Burgess Starr when Creffield came into town. And Esther was 15. She was super shy. And she actually played piano for the Salvation Army. So she did have that connection. Okay. And then eventually, a bunch of people joined, around 27 people in total. And the majority of Creffield's disciples were women. But he did attract a handful of men, including a man named Brother Brooks, who was a Salvation Army captain. Wow. And actually, Brother Brooks was sent in early 1903 to investigate Creffield's sect or cult or religion. So they actually told him to go up and watch what was going on. Oh, so he was sent as a spy and then just joined? Yes. He later said during a worship service he'd seen, the devil approaching and wrapped in a network of snakes... So he threw his hat into a fire 
and join the sect, <laughs> becoming Crapfield's second in command. Oh, damn. <laughs> and in my notes, I wrote, haha, what? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess that has a lot of meaning on some level. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it didn't sound like the then the devil and wrapped in snakes or whatever it was like disappeared or something. Well, the weird thing about it, I guess to me, I would be like, yeah, the devil is here. Run away. Right. Not, oh, better burn my hat and stay a while. <laughs> yeah. What's up with burning the hat? No idea, man. It's just a like power move back in the day. Very, very early 1900s power move. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sorry, my hat is burnt. What can I say? Well, that was my favorite part of any episode of Survivor. Sandra <laughs> burnt Russell's hat. So I feel it. Yeah. <laughs> so... Crepfield services were pretty controversial. Uh-huh. There's a lot of rumors that surrounded what he did. The big, big rumor was he would pull all the curtains shut and have these full-on moaning, chanting, tongue-speaking, evangelical yelling sessions. Uh-huh. And at some point, he would yell, vile clothes, be gone, and would take off his clothes along with a bunch of the women who were there. And then he'd yell, roll, ye sinners, roll. And they'd all roll around on the floor naked with Creffield and Brother Brooks, which <laughs> seems like that would be awesome. But realistically, they weren't naked. That's not okay. Really. There's a lot of rumors in this. And okay. I, we'll navigate it as best we can. Sure. Because people were freaked about them because they did pull the curtain shut before the meetings and uh-huh. then do these face down power grovel screaming things. And they did it so loud yeah. and so long and so often that the neighbors were completely freaked out by them. Yeah. I could imagine. I also just love that the whole idea was, Oh, this place is so godless. Let's go bring church to them. And then what they're doing sounds to me remarkably godless. No, I mean, not to them. I mean, I think that I, it's just worship. You know what I mean? I mean, Creffield also is really going rogue. So yeah, <laughs> roll ye sinners, roll. I don't think that this is what the Salvation Army had in mind when they were thinking they would help this region become. <laughs> yeah. I think Creffield uh, exacerbated some weirdness. Uh huh. You know Got what I'm it. Saying? Yeah. Yes. I can. I can. I can picture it. And he didn't have a particular ideology to the sect, especially in the early days. He was mostly about feelings over scripture. He wanted his people to give up material things, basically. So like fancy food and fancy clothes mm-hmm. and sort of restore themselves to being Adam and Eve. Right. The beginning of, you know, humans or whatever. Sure. But they're basically like hippies. They would walk around. They had no shoes, you know, raggedy clothes, long hair flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were really easy to spot because this town is super small. You know, so they would just be like, oh, there's those hippie guys. <laughs> yeah, walk totally. around, man. <laughs> okay, I got it. Um, and he also taught them that they would have to cut out any non-believers out of their lives. So we're getting to that culty stuff. That's a straight up red flag. Yeah, okay. That's so, a red flag. So he doesn't want you to have anything good and all people need to be gone from your past. Right. And he didn't want to keep the fancy stuff. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to burn it and get it out of the way. That's what he likes to do is that's what we'll find out later. He loves to burn things. Well, it sounds to me, it's one of those moves where it's like, I just need you to know that I'm the only thing that's important. Right. And I just need me. Right. And you. Right. right? We're a family. <laughs> so that meant people were cutting out wives and husbands and children and parents, whatever. It didn't matter. 
if you were a non-believer, you could leave your kids. If they're non-believers, that's mm-hmm. fine. Just leave them alone. Sure. So generally, a married couple would join the church, and then after a while, the husband would get tired of Creffield's crazy, intense shit and leave. <laughs> but for the right, the wife, self-denial and bending to the will of a dude was a totally normal thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because in 1903, that that was marriage. Sure. Women couldn't even vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. And eventually she would just identify her missing in action husband as a non-believer and cut him off. Right. That makes sense. And the husbands are like, I don't worship dudes. That's women's work. I mean, kind of. I'm used to getting worshipped. Right, right. Or at least like they're used to being in charge. Yeah. So having a guy who's like really bossing you around, the women were kind of cool with it. (laughs) (laughs) And the husbands were... Just like, that's my job. Right. And and now the women are like, and now I can just wear this like raggedy dress around and like not worry about having nice shoes and stuff. Right. And the kids don't believe in it. I'm not going to make dinner. I'm just yeah. going to go for a walk and pick some flowers. In fact, something. I don't even have those kids anymore. They're gone now. <laughs> They're dead to me. All right. <laughs> uh, Corvallis newspapers had taken a call on the Creffield sect, the Holy Rollers, because of their worshiping practices, such as rolling on the ground. <laughs> but Creffield called them God's anointed. All right. And he believed in the second coming of Christ, basically kind of like the rapture, Mm -hmm. except for instead of going to heaven, the earth would become Eden again. And then Christ would come down to the new Eden and that would herald this new period of time where we all are naked and running around and there's no sin or whatever. I feel like this guy's really ahead of his time. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. Why do you say that? (laughs) I don't know. Because I thought cults and this sort of like hippy dippy, like we should just frolic around in flowers wasn't didn't happen until like the 1960s. No, I guess this guy was thinking about stuff. I mean, he seemed pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just some short German man. Yeah, right. And he, you know, of course, his followers are mostly ladies. So he did name the church the Bride of Christ Church. Mm. And then he called himself Joshua the Second. Okay. As in the second coming of Joshua. Okay. And I don't know. Do you know who Joshua is? No. So Joshua's kind of like pre-Jesus. Wow. He's a little bit like kind of sub Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> He's a major figure in Exodus. He's basically known in some Christian sects as being the precursor to Jesus. And in Islam, he's seen as a successor to Muhammad. It's basically the closest you can get to calling yourself Jesus without really calling yourself Jesus. Mm -hmm, mm Because as much as these guys were down with Creffield, I think probably if he started saying, oh, now you may call me Jesus, the cat would be out of the bag. I got you. Right? (laughs) Yeah. He's trying to be subtle. Yeah, yeah. He's walking that line. Exactly. Also, just as a dumb thing that I found out, Mormons actually named the Joshua tree after Joshua because it looked like he was supplicating to God. Like the tree. Okay. I've seen lots of Joshua trees. I feel like that's a big imaginative leap on their part. But uh, I also look at constellations and don't see whatever the hell the Greeks saw when they look up at the stars. Right. So. People just had a lot of imagination back <laughs> yeah. then. Like, well, there's no TV. They're like, yeah, that cactus looks like he's supplicating to God. That's right. It looks real supplicated. <laughs> so... Eventually, the town got fed up with all the moaning and the general shenanigans and told Creffield to beat it. Uh So he took his sack and he moved it to this big island called Kiger Island in the middle of the Willamette River. And it had no buildings on it or anything. It was just a wild ass island. Yeah. And they made wigwams and they pitched tents and 
had basically, you know, rolling around sessions, but this time in the grass. And it was summertime, so it was like really nice and there were butterflies and it was really like idyllic. I mean, that part of the country is so incredibly beautiful. It's the really Willamette good. Valley, that's like where all the good wine comes from out of Oregon. Yeah. That's like truly gorgeous country. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? What? What is a wigwam? It's like a yurt or a tent or something. It's just okay. a, it's a structure okay, made you. out of branches that you can make if you were trying to be a hippie out in the woods. <laughs> okay, I got you. You didn't have like a power saw or something. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and this is another place where there's another wild rumor that happened that I don't think is substantiated. Uh-huh. But there's a rumor that while they were on the island, a man showed up with a camera mm-hmm. and took pictures of everyone on the island. And, you know, the Hurt family we were talking about is a really prominent family uh-huh. and everybody knew who, who these followers were mm-hmm. and the rumor is that they were all naked and rolling around and he took pictures of them yeah. and then people were so into it they passed it around until the photo kind of disintegrated <laughs> just it went viral right but there's no proof <laughs> well that's of course there's no proof they keep the, the photos turned to dust this with all the fingers just trading underneath school desks and down <laughs> just classic so the fall of 1903 came and obviously if you've ever been to the pacific northwest it comes with tons of cold weather and rain sure heavy rain and the island basically becomes uninhabitable so Ovi hurt's wife sarah invited the entire sect to stay with them at their home they have this big beautiful house in the middle of town wow So the town was super shocked about this. She basically moved everyone in. And then the next day, there's a sign hanging over the Hertz gate reading, positively no admittance except on the business of God. Whoa. Which, you know, it just gets really crazy. Yeah, right. So basically, Ovi Hurt at this point had been tolerating Creffield. Mm-hmm. His wife loves Creffield. His daughters love Creffield. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So he's like, whatever, I'll do it too. Yeah. But... Once they start moving into his house, he gets kind of into it. <laughs> okay, great. So he's like really starting to really be into it. He hangs yeah. the sign, blah, blah, blah. And he's solidly converted at this Shh. point. Okay. And on October 28th, Creffield's followers dragged all of the furniture and possessions out of the house, lit a massive bonfire, and burned all his shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I have a quote from a newspaper uh-huh. about the bonfire because people were freaking. And you're saying this is like the rich family in town. Yes. They're like the fancy rich people in town. So this is a quote from the local times, the Corvallis Times. Certain caprices of religious fanaticism have been manifested at the house that are so unusual as to suggest a condition bordering insanity. Walks about the house have been torn away. Much of the furniture of the house has been reduced to ashes in a bonfire held last night in the yard on the theory that God wills it. The shrubbery and fruit trees and all the flowers have been dug up and destroyed. The kitchen utensils have been beaten to pieces and buried. And then there's an ellipsis. It is reported that the house cats and dogs have been cremated. They killed the pets? Which people are saying that's not true. (laughs) But what did happen is there was a dog that was running around bugging them, so then they threw that in the fire. So they killed... (laughs) 
there's something going on. And and all the plants and trees and flowers. Yeah, he's like, these are worldly possessions. You want to have a fine, rich house with all your stupid trees and flowers? Yeah, he's like, don't you know this is going to be the Garden of Eden? And guess what's not in the Garden of Eden? Flowers or animals. Well, that's a good point, Nikki. You are really on fire today. <laughs> oh, my God. So Ovi Hurt was like, I don't want any of my stuff anymore. I, I don't care about being rich and... Yeah, for about five seconds, he was like this. Okay. <laughs> and then about two weeks later, he totally changed his mind. <laughs> he was pissed. Everybody, I mean, well, I also think this is funny because the paper's just reporting on whatever this guy chooses to do. You know, it's mm-hmm. not really a crime or anything. Yeah. Like, they don't have anything else to talk about. Yeah, it's like the gossip pages or something. Yeah, there's but like, it's... There's a huge fire and all and Ovi Hurt burnt all of his couches. What is going on with that guy? <laughs> and then two weeks later, he was like, I miss my couches and gets pissed. Basically. Okay. I mean, there's trouble in the sect. The town is not feeling this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They don't like the bonfire. They don't like whatever's going on. They don't like that Crawfield is in the middle of the city because mm-hmm. they keep trying to get rid of him. They don't mm-hmm. want him to be before when they were holding these meetings, they were in people's houses. So he didn't have a church. Oh, really? So that's part of the reason why the neighbors were really nervous because he would be just going over when wives, husbands were at work, he would mm-hmm. be going over to their houses and holding these revival meetings. So part of the reason why they're, closing the curtains is because there's no privacy. They're just in these homes. Wow. But then all the neighbors could hear them you wow. know, screaming and doing the power grovel thing. So that's why they told him, get out of here. And so then that's why they went to the island. And then they come back and now they're in the center of town in the rich man's house and they've just burned all of his stuff. That is a special breed of manipulative, I believe, to like go into people's houses. Well, it's it's not. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but that's also, I think that's what, early Christians did. That's not Mm. an unheard of thing. Okay. That people are doing religious activities in each other's homes. I mean, there was this kind of clandestine element about it because Mm -hmm. he would hold these meetings when the husbands were gone. The ones that aren't don't like him <laughs> yeah so yeah. i mean there was definitely some oddness about that i have another question for you what? you've been calling it a sect a lot so at this point it's not a cult or is mm, it's i don't know dude i mean he i think they called themselves christian they use a lot of christian ideology mm-hmm. but clearly whatever crefield is describing didn't come out of the book of revelations he's just making it up okay but i mean i think he would call himself christian that's how okay. they feel and they feel like he's god and this is the christian god mm-hmm. and jesus is a part of it mm-hmm. so they use a lot of the same imagery and feelings and things like that got it so you're calling it a sect because that's probably what they would consider themselves and a cult would be like a judgmental outsider's view of what's going on right i i wrote down the difference between a cult and religion just so i could think about it Mm -hmm. and it's not that difference i don't think okay basically they say with religion it's belief in a the worship of a superhuman or controlling power like god or gods right Mm -hmm. a super something that doesn't exist on this earth. Okay. So you're worshiping, I don't worship you. Mm -hmm. I worship the guy in the sky. Mm -hmm. And I think cults are more devotion directed to a particular figure and object that exists here. Okay. So that's how they're distinguishing it. So if I worship you, then it's a cult. If I worship God, then it's, I worship you, (laughs) brother. You know I do. If I worship you, it's a cult. If I worship God, it's a religion. That's kind of the general idea of Mm -hmm. the difference between the two. So 
at this point, he's being super sneaky, right? Because he's calling himself Joshua, not Jesus. Yeah. But if he called himself Jesus, okay, then it would be more solidly a cult. But it's a he wink also, at a cult. <laughs> it's, yeah, right. It's like yeah, it's cult light. Yeah. But he also, as far as I can tell, doesn't read the Bible, so he might have thought that he was calling himself Jesus and just got the J's mixed up. And then afterwards was like, damn it, I meant Jesus. Look at you, you little sleuth. You got all these ideas. <laughs> True crime extraordinaire. She's Louise, man. All right. <laughs> okay, so back to the story. So things are not going well for Creftfield. Mm-hmm. And the town decides to hold a sanity hearing. What is a sanity hearing, you may ask? <laughs> I ask, I ask. So obviously on the frontier, there were very few services for mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. So the way the government tried to deal with that problem is in 1844, they started appropriating $500 for different regions. I don't know exactly how that works. Maybe the yeah. cities um, for the care of the insane. So any justice of the peace could conduct a sanity hearing and declare someone a lunatic. And then on the frontier, they would hold an auction and the insane person would go to the to anyone in the town who made the lowest bid for room and board of that person. So you would go to these sanity auctions mm-hmm. and or these sanity hearings. So somebody would be declared a lunatic and mm-hmm. then you'd go and you would bid on to get some of that five hundred dollars. And then you could take the lunatic back to your farm and basically just work them, I'm assuming. I don't think this is very nice. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. They're like, oh, we have a crazy person here. And someone's like, hey, I'll take care of them for 10 bucks. Right. And I think that person would probably keep them off the street and keep them fed. And in best case scenario, right, they're Mm -hmm. like, I could do it for a year on 50 bucks. Maybe they could. Maybe that's enough money. But I mean, when I was reading about this, one of the bids was for a dollar. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that guy just bid a dollar to get a slave. Like, yeah, right. That does not seem super reasonable to me. But that's yeah. what people would go. They would go and bid on these people and get them back on their phone. And you could just, anyone could be like, we have to have a sanity hearing for Muriel. And yeah. then you would just have to go and prove you're not insane. Right. And then if I was insane, somebody could purchase me for whatever low bid that would supposedly cover my room and board. But there was no threshold that they would say, that doesn't work. A dollar for a year? Like nobody (laughs) would say that. They could bid anything they want. Do we hear 75 cents? Right. Or if you go to one of these sanity auctions and nobody shows up, you could bid $400, which is way more than what you'd need to keep this person. Then you just get a bunch of money. Oh, damn. But it's just an incentive to keep people remotely sheltered that's what they used to do okay okay it also <laughs> seems like a very good incentive like look you can't act wild yeah right. everyone needs to be sort of sane because guess what we'll sell you into an indentured servitude right i mean it's pretty wild huh? yeah, yeah that's horrible okay so what happened did crefield get uh deemed insane no <laughs> it's <laughs> did, fine. did he pull, pull the judge into his cult basically they just said you're not crazy but you gotta get the hell out of town we're over it they were just like you need to leave oh wow Ovi hurt totally changed his mind he threw everyone out of the house and creffield and brother brooks skipped town donna star right donna mitchell she was hauled back to portland by her husband burgess 
Esther Mitchell, the 15-year-old piano player, mm-hmm. um, and Donna's sister, she was committed to the Oregon Boys and Girls AIDS Society, which is also another one where they were like, wayward girls and boys. And you take them and then they go immediately into indentured servitude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just was like, what else are you going to do, man? Right. So it's basically finding... So they considered her an orphan, right? Because her mother had died and her father skipped town. And they were like, now we're going to bring you into our aid society, a.k.a. go work the fields. Well, her brother, she had two older brothers mm-hmm. and George and Perry, and they were the ones who sent her because they were like, you are not acting right. OK. Right. They were just mad okay. that she was hanging around with Creffield. Sure. Um, and when she went there, she was diagnosed with acute religious mania and uh, of possessing a mind almost unhinged by religious fanatics. Wow. So she was in trouble, boy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Crepfield and Brooks disappeared for like a month. And then they came back around Christmas time. Oh, yeah, they just showed up. They just showed back up again. And they had about 10 followers who had remained loyal. Mm-hmm. And what they decided to do that they thought was really slick is they just rented the house across the river like right directly across the river from Corvallis. Oh, so they're just like, look, we're, we we didn't come back. We're still gone. <laughs> and it's, but everyone can see them. Yeah, of course. So everyone was saying, well, we told you to get the fuck out of town. What are you doing out here? Obviously, tensions are high. And on the evening of January 4th, just a few days after they got there, a group of men marched to the house. They snatched up Creffield and Brother Brooks, marched them through the streets of Corvallis, took them into the woods and tarred and feathered them, which is really drastic. That, oh, okay, wow. I thought you were going to say they murdered them right there. I was no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and they were murdered. End of podcast. Uh, tarring and feathering, from my imagination, is just so incredibly drastic. I got tar on my shoe one time, and it just ruined my day. Yeah. And it was like one little bit of tar. It's pretty drastic you have to take a turpentine bath and it's really caustic it's super hard to do so they're not they're not out there murdering fools Mm -hmm. but they are like get out of the town we don't like you (laughs) yeah you are now covered in tar and feathers now go so after this poor brother brooks just disappears from the story he's out that was enough for him to decide that this is not his own religious calling. Yeah. So he dressed like a chicken. He ran into the woods. <laughs> but. <laughs> then he became the man enwrapped in snakes or something for someone else's religious awakening story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But Miss Sarah Hurt, mm-hmm. remember O.V. Hurt's wife and her daughter Maud went into the woods, found the prophet. They found him kind of naked and hiding and covered in tar. Mm-hmm. And they brought him back. They stripped all the tar off of his body and they immediately married him to Maud the next day. Oh my God. Wow. Is this something about the tar and feathering that really turned Maud on, huh? I don't know, man. I mean, I don't think it has anything to do with that. <laughs> I like how you're now slyly calling him the prophet. I mean, he is kind of the prophet. Yeah. I mean, he has a lot of power in this sure. situation. And when he married Maud, it raised a bunch of eyebrows, but was ultimately this relief, right? Because his townspeople thought he had finally settled down and stopped being a crazy ass. He was, oh, they're married now. Oh. He's not going to be so weird. People just thought, once you get married, you're going to have some kids and you're going to be chill. Right, like we tarred and feathered him. He's settling down. He's going to be good to go. Yeah, exactly. But immediately, Joshua started crazy assing all over again. <laughs> So this is all happening in January. He's married. A few weeks go by. And then by February, he had sent Maude to go live with her parents. 
just sent her back. Mm -hmm. And then he had sort of wandered around and drifted up to Portland where he reconnected with a small number of exiled followers from Corvallis, Mm -hmm. including Esther Mitchell's married sister, Donna. And he immediately got everyone singing and shouting and rolling around the ground in no time. (laughs) Crefield had also begun to introduce this doctrine of ritual purification. Uh So what he was starting to tell people is that souls were purified through sexual intercourse. Okay. Right? Okay. All right. So I see what he did there. he had sex with Donna. <laughs> of course. Of course. Why not? Immediately went up there and had sex with Donna. So adultery is a crime in Oregon at the time, like a big jail- jailable offense crime. Mm-hmm. And when Donna's husband figured out she was sleeping with Creffield, he filed a criminal complaint. But before he could be arrested, Creffield disappeared again. So he's gone. Nobody can find him. He hit it and quit it. He hit it and quit it. Disappeared like a puff of, I don't know, Holy Spirit smoke. (laughs) So there's this massive police hunt now underway. People were giving all this money to the police to try to like support this police hunt. O.V. Hurt gave them $150, which is a lot of money. Right yeah, there. right. You could buy like 12 homeless people. For that. <laughs> Isn't that wild? But basically, because everyone wanted to capture Creffield. They don't want Creffield around. They tried to tar and feather him. Yeah, he would right. disappear. And so finally, now they have a reason to get him behind bars. But sure. they, so this is really a big, hot, massive manhunt. They're Got looking it. for him. In the meantime, effects of holy rollerism had mysteriously returned to Corvallis. Creffield's remaining followers had started shouting and indiscriminately rolling around together on bare floors. <laughs> Women were again neglecting their wifely duties and they weren't doing their homemaking duties. Yeah. Started wandering around the streets barefoot. It was mostly like a hint, you know, but it started really... Yeah, but really coming back. I feel like it's sort of hard to like subtly start screaming and drop on the floor and start rolling around. You know, you just be like, God, I'm glad that guy's that guy's gone. That's so great. I'm glad he's gone. And then somebody would just drop to the floor and start screaming. (laughs) Well, all right, we're just gonna let that go. Yeah, just one lady. Just a quick little slip up. Margaret just had a relapse. Exactly. I think it started like that. Yeah, it's like, oh no, damn it. There's Margaret. She doesn't have braids in her hair. (laughs) The Corvallis Times again with the Corvallis Times accused Creffield of, quote, leading weak women into a state of mind where there was more frenzy than reason. I thought this was interesting because the Times is assuming this lack of agency in the women. Mm -hmm. And it's the same type of thing that led the women to Creffield. Like, the men didn't like studying with Creffield because Creffield really subjugated everyone. Yeah. But there is some freedom in it. Sure. He offered the women a chance to break from societal norms and to walk around barefoot and not have to like really care so much about what their husband wants. Or even care about their husbands at all right. if, I, if he wasn't a believer. Right. And, and I can see that representing some level of freedom. Mm-hmm. And then the Times is coming out and saying, oh, well, Creffield is controlling their weak minds. Yeah, but right. Creffield isn't even there. Yeah, what right. you have is a town of women who were rebelling. Right. Totally, totally, totally. It's like, if the women are weak-minded, it's because their society has forced them to play these, like, you know, subjugated roles. Right. I mean, I'm going to nitpick you or mm-hmm. whatever. They're not weak-minded. Right. You know, it's just a matter of what opportunities does this society give you? 
And if somebody is walking by and saying, hey, you don't want to clean the house? Don't clean the house. <laughs> yeah. You think your kids are annoying? They don't believe in God? Don't pay attention to your kids. <laughs> yeah. You can do whatever you want. And I think you're great. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's a cool alternative yeah. in some ways. I mean, there's nothing weak-minded about that. That right. takes a lot of balls. <laughs> yeah, totally, you know? totally, totally. Walk around Oregon with no shoes on? No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, these women are about it. <laughs> so Crepfield spent three months at large in total and things really started to escalate in Corvallis his followers began to spend their days lying on the floor face down in protest they were praying they were saying they were receiving messages from God and basically friends and family of these women had them committed to the asylum most of them we're not talking about a massive amount of people Mm -hmm. we're talking about about nine people Mm -hmm. but that's where they went. The girls went to the Boys and Girls Aid Society and the women went to the State Insane Asylum in Salem, which was not like a mo- like a really awesome place. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine it not <laughs> being super tight back then. Right. Uh, and was it all still like the fanatical, religious, acute insanity or whatever? Yeah, that, that was basically it. They're like, oh, you got too religious. You need to be religious, right? right? Or else you're not a good woman, but you can't be too religious. <laughs> this is out of hand, guys. God, I wonder when they stopped diagnosing people with that phrase Ah. because there seems to me like there's still some people that could have that uh you know diagnosis put on them well i think people just have more freedom now like women i think used to be committed for having really bad pms and periods (laughs) used to be able to be committed for having too much sex yeah right (laughs) like it's it's definitely different now there's a little more rights i think (laughs) is the main thing um but out of the nine people committed, one of them was O.V. Hurt's wife, Sarah. Damn. Yeah. The head honcho. Yeah, the head honcho. So one day, O.V. Hurt's young son was crawling under the house looking for worms for a fishing trip, and he found Creffield hiding under the house. <laughs> so he's just been there. The whole time. <laughs> just holding church service <laughs> from the crawl space. I don't even know if he was doing that, but just his presence like emboldened people to start acting a crazy. Uh-huh. So when the cops pulled him out from under the house, he was completely naked. He was covered in hair, filthy. He's a super hairy dude, apparently. <laughs> uh, the book Murder Out Yonder says he was, quote, most wonderfully endowed by Mother Nature, which I thought was hilarious because it sounds like they say he's having a giant penis situation. <laughs> yeah. I also love that the word wonderfully endowed is it's particularly hilarious. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, he is a sex god, so, you know, how couldn't he be? It just seems suspect to me, but I think that's very funny that that's how they described him. It's suspect to you how? <laughs> I don't know. It's just like people are just... They're like, how come women follow this guy? It must be because he has a giant dong. Right. But they just like him because he lets them walk around barefoot and act like however they want to act. Yeah. Oh, my God. I hope to God he wasn't doing the purification ritual underneath that house. Well, I nobody knows, really. <laughs> uh, he had been living under the house for two months. Uh-huh. And he'd been living off of the scraps that Sarah Hurt and a few others had been feeding him. Mm-hmm. But after they were all institutionalized... He was starving to death. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So he gets hauled into court for the whole adultery ritual purification thing he did with Donna, right? right. Mm-hmm. And he unhesitatingly admits guilt. So his position was that the adultery had been a part of a vital God-ordered purification ritual. Mm-hmm. So he was super standing behind that choice. There's a really fun quote from Murder Out Yonder. Mm-hmm where Crefield addresses this. Mm -hmm. So they ask him about it, and he says, Christ broke the Sabbath day, and the Jews put him to death. I've broken your laws, and you will undoubtedly do the same to me. Like Christ, however, I will rise again, and ye all shall suffer. So that's his reaction when they say, hey, man, you had sex with Donna, man. That was illegal. And he's like, I will smite you down. I feel like he really hasn't read the Bible. That's what I'm saying. I, honestly, I read these quotes and I'm like, I don't think you read the Bible. Yeah. That's fine. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. I also love that he was just like, yeah, I'm guilty of being too Christian. Okay. I'm guilty of doing what God told me to do. And now I'm resurrected it's like no actually joshua or whatever you call yourself that's not what resurrection is you have to actually die to be resurrected (laughs) yeah right exactly and he's like yeah and i'm sure you're gonna put me to death they're like no we're putting you in prison for three years (laughs) stop you're not that special so did he go to jail for three years listen dude i'm finishing my thought okay okay? sorry sorry sorry. i'm just very excited jesus christ you are excited i do like that okay okay so you know basically He's being very bold about this. And that mm-hmm. begs the question, who else has he purified? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, every, right. this is a, a lot of when these rumors started about this being a massive sex cult. Yeah. There's not really a lot of evidence that it was actually a sex cult, mm-hmm. but this is definitely where some of those thoughts started yeah and he's already been described as being wonderfully endowed by mother nature he has and a that- giant dog <laughs> <laughs> but basically people thought all about all these women refusing to speak to their husbands and mm-hmm. fathers and praying and rolling around in someone's house you know under the supervision of this adulterer who saw nothing wrong with having sex with someone else's wife yeah why wouldn't god order him to purify other women too yeah. I mean, given the evidence, it'd be really hard to think otherwise. Yeah, right. I have a question. So what? he's got arrested for having sex with another man's wife, but is it a crime for him to have cheated on his actual wife, on his wife? You know, I think people just don't think that women matter. Yeah. Donna didn't get in trouble. And mm-hmm. his wife, they don't care. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly Big Dongo over here. Yeah, right. <laughs> Basically, it's a Big Dongo. <laughs> All right. this is also around the time that the rumors really got started about Creffield's alleged plan to impregnate one of his followers on behalf of God. So there's this story kind of floating around in the lore and the ether that as this religion develops, Creffield decides that he needs to impregnate one of his followers so it can be the second coming of uh, Jesus. So he has to find designated Mary. Oh, I love so, how it started with, oh, Jesus is is coming back, so we have to get ready. And he's like, actually, Jesus is coming back, so I have to have sex with you now. Right, exactly. And so now he's Joshua. And mm-hmm. and Joshua and what's Mary's husband's name? Oh, uh, Joseph? Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> We're like talking trash about someone else not reading the Bible. We're like, you know, who's the guy? Man, I'm a Christian. <laughs> So it's possible that this rumor was true, but Mm -hmm. it seems like it was made up. Uh, It took the jury 12 minutes to render a guilty verdict. (laughs) 
And then Joshua gave this insane rambling speech in which he misquoted several Bible verses and called the saints to witnesses. Of course. And the judge sentenced him to two years in prison in Salem, Oregon. Wow. So he did get that prison sentence for donking his bong. <laughs> donking his bong. <laughs> so while Crefield served his time, his followers were gradually discharged from all these asylums and returned to their homes and families in Corvallis. Uh, Crefield's wife, Maud Hurt, divorced him in July and moved to Seattle to live with her brother and her sister-in-law. And things had pretty much returned to normal in Corvallis. Mm -hmm. Rollerism is dead. Mm -hmm. Everyone is normal again. They're wearing shoes, braiding their hair, whatever. <laughs> okay, great. So Crefield was released 15 months later without the beard and the wild hair. So his prophet hair is gone. Mm -hmm. And he bummed around Los Angeles and San Francisco. He kind of went down to California uh, while he's growing out his beard again because you can't be a prophet without a beard. Yeah, I, that is true. That's true. Um, and then he started writing letters to the now 17-year-old Esther Mitchell. Uh-oh. So we know for sure that he was asking Esther to start gathering his followers again. Mm -hmm. He really is freaked out about going to Corvallis because he knows that they're mad at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he does start using her to start reaching out to different congregants. Got it. Trying to let them know he's out. Of Daddy's out of jail. Daddy's coming home, right? Yeah, okay. So she's scouting for him. Right. The other thing that may or may not happen uh, is that he told her she would be the second mother of Christ. So if anyone was the second mother of Christ in yeah. that rumor, in that yeah. structure of the religion, yeah. it was definitely Esther. Okay, great. Okay? Okay. If that was true, it was definitely yeah. Esther. Yeah, he was like, I know Jesus was born of a virgin the first time, but the second time you're going to have to have sex with me in order to have Christ return. That's right. I mean, I just preached the Bible just a little bit different, baby. <laughs> So then, after he talks to Esther, he sends O.V. Hurt a letter, and I'm going to read this to you because this is his mindset. Okay, good. You know, he's still too afraid to go to Oregon, by the way, so just yeah. remember that. Okay. God has resurrected me. I have now got my foot on your neck. God has restored me to my own. I will return to Oregon and gather all of my followers. Place no obstruction in my way, or God will smite you. Joshua too. <laughs> He's talking a lot of shit for a five foot three guy with a yeah. giant dog. Joshua, too fast, too furious, coming to your neck. I mean, this so, foot this summer. He's so sassy. I know. You know, it's like he acts like he doesn't have any money. He just got out of jail. His followers are gone. Brother Brooks is gone. His wife divorced him, and he's writing Ov Hurt. This like, I've got you just where I want you. Letter. Yeah, right. But oh turns God. out he kind of did. Okay. So the next thing he does is he writes a letter to his ex-wife, Maude, Ovi Hertz's daughter, daughter. Uh, who immediately said she'll remarry him if he just comes and gets her in Seattle. I've been waiting for you. Come back. I'll remarry you. So Joshua heads straight up the coast from California, bypassing Corvallis, Oregon. <laughs> Esther's doing his dirty work. He's yeah. not going back there because he's freaked, man. He knows he's going to get his ass beat. Goes straight up to Seattle, marries Maude, and then... His intention at this point is to return to Corvallis to start a colony bigger and badder than anything the town had ever seen. 
<laughs> so he needs cash to purchase some land. Uh-huh. He wants to go and purchase some real Eden-esque land mm-hmm. on the coast. And he convinces Maud's brother, who's Ovi Hurt's son, <laughs> he convinces Maud's brother and wife to sell their house in Seattle and give him the cash. That is some pimp shit. That's some big dong energy. <laughs> So with that cash, he purchases a strip of oceanfront land south of Waldport, Oregon. So Frank Hurt and his wife and Maude, all super down with this cult, were to go ahead to the property while Joshua gathered his faithful from Corvallis. Mm-hmm. He never really goes straight into Corvallis, but yeah. he lurks, right? Right, he's got Esther doing his dirty work. Right, he's trying to deal with Esther and do all these things. And then they're all supposed to meet back at the property together. Mm-hmm. And his plan was to threaten everyone in Corvallis with the wrath of God if they didn't agree to come down to his land. Got it. Right, yeah. so that's, mm-hmm. his, that's his big plan. He also then allegedly cursed San Francisco, Corvallis, Portland for some reason, and also Seattle. Like, he's mad. <laughs> yeah, okay, great. He's just cursing full cities at this point. Right, he's saying they're all Sodoms. I think he's using Sodoms in the wrong way. Yeah. Because he probably can't read. And he's yeah. saying, if you don't come down to my new Eden, Eden 2 with yeah. Joshua 2, you're all going to hell, plus all these cities I don't like. <laughs> Okay, great. Right? Yeah. So they all go their separate ways. And then a few days later, they meet up in Newport, Oregon on the 18th of April. Okay. And this is when Creffield finds out that San Francisco had been decimated by an earthquake. It was the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Oh, damn. So the city had burned after the earthquake. It killed an estimated 3,000 people. They had left about 400,000 people homeless. And he just looked at everybody and he goes, I knew it. Because it's like now his curse is coming true. Right, right. Then there's the trickle of women. They all start coming down. Mm, words getting out. Words getting out. Oh, yeah. Cora Hartley and her daughter Sophia join them. Esther Mitchell comes down. There's a girl named Addie Bray, Olive Sandell. There's all these people, right? Yeah. And Frank Hurt is actually one of the only men who's down there. But they're all kind of down there <laughs> starting to set up camp. Yeah. Somebody brought their five-month-old baby. Jesus. They were coming down. Oh, no. Esther's sister Donna, remember, who got in trouble with adultery? Yeah. She wasn't the second Mary, but he did do it with her. <laughs> uh, she snuck out of her home in the middle of the night, leaving her husband and three children. Damn. And then she boarded a train from Portland to Crevallis because um, she's up in Portland now. Yeah. She got exiled. She was in big trouble. Right. Uh, and then before leaving, she left him this note and it said, quote, I have taken about $3.50 of your money, but I guess I have been worth that much to you. It is not enough to pay my fare, and I will have to walk to the place I am going. (laughs) And then after getting off the train at Corvallis, she walked 70 miles across like mountain channels. That lady is such a gangster. I know, because that's a salty ass thing to say. I mean, that note is basically like, I'm stealing from you. I'm not sorry. You're welcome that it's not more. I should have taken more from you. Don't even act like you care about me. And I'm going to go, you want to know how much I can love? You want to know what you're missing out on? I'm going to walk 70 miles (laughs) barefoot to a man who's wonderfully endowed. (laughs) 
Jesus. So yeah. all of these women are kind of trickling out of the town. And mm-hmm. there were about 50 girls and women in total. Damn. And like maybe two guys. So mm-hmm. you're going down to Newport, Oregon. Then they're taking a ferry to go to the Yakina Bay. And then you travel by foot to the Garden of Joshua. That's mm-hmm. what he was calling it. So it's this really epic journey. Sure. And a lot of the women walked it because they didn't have the money. Wow. You know, because he said, get rid of your worldly possessions. What, <laughs> yeah. what are they going to do? Sell the pin he burned? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Jesus. It's like, damn it. Joshua, couldn't we have kept our boots? We should have kept something. That was not a good plan. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so they get down there and Joshua had somehow had this big pile of bathrobe type things, like these robes. So he hands them all out. And then he has the women burn all their clothes in a giant bonfire. He loves those things. <laughs> he loves bonfires. And the living conditions were really crappy in the Garden of Joshua. They lived in huts and they cooked food over open fires. Uh-huh. It was just cold and miserable. It's Oregon. I know. I grew up in Seattle. Even yeah, the right. summers aren't nice, you know? Yeah, right. Totally. And at this point, the men of Corvallis are starting to freak. Mm-hmm. They're just freaking. The fathers, the brothers, and the sons all sort of start to venture out to find their women. Because uh-huh. they're gone. Right. You know, and at first they're like, well, good riddance. And then they're like, but where did they go? And they're like, oh, no, they're doing it with this guy. <laughs> the German man is back. He's so small. Ah, Creffield. <laughs> One of the dads got really close to catching Creffield. He, uh, he headed down to Newport and he bought a gun and he's hot on Creffield's tail. And he runs down to the ferry and he misses it by a second. Mm-hmm. And he looks up and he sees on the deck of the ferry, there's a five foot three bearded man surrounded by a bathroom women. <laughs> so obviously he's like, ah, yeah, as the ferry's like slowly departing the dock. I mean, it's funny if you've ever been on a ferry in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> yeah. they are not known for their speed. They're so slow. <laughs> and then I've missed ferries just by a few minutes. It's so frustrating. It's so annoying. You, you could run and jump on the stupid deck <laughs> yeah. for how fast it's going. Yeah. So he's standing there and he raises the gun to shoot the prophet. It's a full gun. And he shoots it six times. And the gun just clicks. And Creffield is swept away slowly into the fog. And all the women see it. They see that Creffield cannot be shot by a gun. <laughs> what actually happened was the guy who sold him the gun sold him the wrong kind of bullets. <laughs> so that was just a bad luck thing. But of course now they're like, oh my God, yeah, he destroyed right. San Francisco and now he cannot be killed. I do believe that Creffield is a maniac, but... I have yet to be You can't say it's not God. Yeah, I don't know that he's not God. Right. I understand that. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of the women thought the same thing. Right. I don't you we don't know he's not God. Right. So this incident with the gun thing really galvanized the Corvallis men to head over to Newport, <laughs> get to the garden and murder Joshua. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joshua too. They're yeah. they're mad. Yeah. And also now they kind of know where he is a little better. Mm-hmm, they know mm-hmm. where the ferry's going. They mm-hmm. kind of have a better sense of where they're going. So they start getting posses together and heading out. Creffield kind of gets it. He's like, okay, if there's going to be a crazy ass dude on the dock where the ferry is departing, then they probably kind of know where I am. Yeah, they're going to be coming after me any day now. Right. So he departs. He grabs Maud and he makes his escape. He heads back up to Seattle. Now, Donna and Esther Mitchell, Mm -hmm. remember, have a brother. Okay. That brother, George, who committed Esther to an asylum twice so far. Right. (laughs) So he's not feeling this whole thing. Right. And then his brother is one that got cheated on 
with yeah. by Donna. Right. So he's been in the mix and Well, no, no, no. Donna's his sister. Yep, of course he is. You literally <laughs> just explained that. Okay, I'm paying attention and I know who George is. Got it. Okay. Okay. George Mitchell. George Mitchell wants a piece of Creffield, right? Mm. Creffield's been writing his sister's letters, yeah. talking about how they're the second Mary he's going to impregnate them. <laughs> yeah. He's been having sex with Donna. You yeah. know, he's like, I sent them to the asylum. It didn't fix this thing. <laughs> this is insane. How do I get these girls to stop doing it with this tiny man with a massive dog, right? They're just like, this has to stop. So when George Mitchell arrives in Newport looking for Creffield, he finds out he has just missed the prophet and his wife Maud, but yeah. he also finds out they had purchased tickets to Seattle. Okay, so now he knows where they're going. Yeah, so he's hot on their trail, right? So he buys tickets and he makes his way into Seattle. He gets down into the streets of Seattle and he just starts stalking the streets, looking for Joshua too. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's staying in boarding houses and he's basically hunting this guy. Wow. Yeah. In the morning on May seventh in nineteen oh six. Creffield and his wife Maud were dressed in Christian Orthodox clothes and they're strolling along Second and Cherry in downtown Seattle. Been there many times. Many, many times, right in the heart of downtown. And as they stood outside Quick's drugstore, George Mitchell walks up behind the pair and shoots the prophet Joshua II point blank in the head. Damn. So he dies instantly. And then when police arrived, George was smoking a cigar. Oh, so this guy like hunted he, him for days. Yeah, shot him. Did not hesitate. Murdered, murdered him. him. Cold blood in the streets, daylight, broad day. In the middle of the morning, yeah. And then just over his still warm body starts smoking a cigar. Yeah, and Maude is losing her mind. The cop walks up and she just screams, this man... This man is my husband, Joshua the prophet. He will arise in three days and walk. And the cop is just like, what is going on? (laughs) There's a guy, he's dead. This guy is smoking a cigar. He looks super happy. And this lady is saying this guy is going to come back to life. Like, they just don't really. Right. It was and just... it's Seattle. They don't know who Creffield is. Yeah. And he was just wearing, like, orthodox clothing. They just seemed like nice, quiet people. Yeah. They're like, oh, man, Oregon guys are back here. I hate people from Oregon. They're so crazy, man. <laughs> George, before the trial, just sends uh, O.V. Hurt a quick telegram, uh-huh. just letting him know he had finally killed the prophet and that he was in jail in Seattle. <laughs> okay, and great. so O.V. Hurt yeah. sort of spreads that word. And people really did come up to support him in the trial. Uh-huh. They were reporting in Corvallis and the Oregon papers all about the trial. It was a yeah. huge West Coast event. Wow. Creffield, for his part, did not really get a great send-off as a prophet. Mm-hmm. They, his followers protested and Maude protested, but basically the city just took his body, stuffed his bullet wound with cotton, and then buried him in a cemetery, in Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle. They just wouldn't, I don't think they had the money to get the body returned to Corvallis or do anything with uh-huh. it, so they just buried him. And he was Jesus. So, like against Maude's wishes. Yeah, basically. So George Mitchell is charged with the murder of Franz Creffield in Seattle. And the trial is about to start. But the Garden of Joshua was, was largely forgotten. You know, Maude is up here. Mm-hmm. Franz Creffield is dead. Yeah. But these girls are still in Oregon somewhere on the coast without any sort of map to find them. Yeah, right. And they're just like a remote, like no one has probably told them. 
No. Do they even know? That they don't craft- even know. They don't know what's going on. There's no post office over there. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's April. It's probably freezing. Yeah. It sucks. And all they have are their little robes. Yeah. You so know? <laughs> things are, are going badly there. They say a timber man named George Hodges was around the area of the Garden of Joshua um, checking out like a stand of Douglas firs that he was thinking about buying. It was really cold and windy. And he walks through these trees and he stumbles upon this small group of women and they're camped out on the beach. And they're just clearly, obviously starving. Like mm-hmm. Their faces are gaunt. They're wearing these bathrobes. And they tell him, you know, we are the followers of Joshua the prophet who has recently destroyed San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And this guy Hodges reads the papers. He knows what happened in San Francisco. And he kind of knows he, Creffield was shot in Seattle. Yeah. So he doesn't want to freak them out. He just kind of asks them, well, where's Joshua? Where do you think he is? And they say, oh, he's off in British Columbia. He's looking for a new home for us. And he says, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Joshua Creffield, he's dead. He's been shot in Seattle a week ago. And the women just start laughing and telling him, no one can kill Joshua with a gun, (laughs) dummy. You stupid lumberjack. Idiot. You don't, he's God. He's in what? He was in Vancouver trying to do what for them? Why? Buy like more property, like a better property for them to go move to. So he sort of lied to them. Yeah. And British Columbia is going to be colder than (laughs) Oregon. I don't know what they think. Like what an improvement on that. The the sunny, warm lands of Canada. (laughs) Come on, man. But, uh, you know, Hodges didn't know what to do. Sure. So he goes, okay, yep, ha, 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 no uh, guns, killed this guy. Yeah. And then he just went back to Corvallis and was like, all right, guys, they're by the stand of Douglas first. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so that's how the last of the girls were taken back to Corvallis, Oregon. Bring some jackets when you go pick them up and maybe a couple of cliff bars yeah. because the girls are hungry. They're hungry, believe me. Meanwhile, the trial in Seattle is underway. And there is a parade of people with grievances coming up from Oregon. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got something to say. There's tons of witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a man named William D. Gardner of the Oregon Boys and Girls Aid Society who definitely dealt with a bunch of girls that ran away, including Esther twice. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, from his perspective, he says that they all talked about having sex with Crefield. Oh, wow. So that came out of trial. They still don't know for sure if it's true because this guy is just some guy you know it's not like he's a trained therapist it's like <laughs> then he goes oh really that's awful let me go sell you into indentured servitude for <laughs> yeah, a while. Right, get right, your right. mind right you know yeah, what i mean right. but it, he did say it at trial uh-huh and he talked a lot about the second mother thing or the second mary thing mm-hmm. how esther was told that she was the second mary yeah. and different people in corvallis talked a lot about how esther would just get sent away and come straight back and go right back to Crefield. Like there was no way to deter her. They just couldn't keep her away. So they talked a lot about her religious mania. And for her part, Esther came up for the trial and she sat emotionless watching the trial for days. She was there for the whole thing. But the parade of witnesses was really great. One example of what people were saying was they testified about the broken home that was caused by Crefield. Mm -hmm. So this dad got, took the stand and just started talking about how his wife and his daughter ruined everything. And like the grievances are his daughter dropped out of college, which is a big deal, you know, because Crefield said knowledge is stupid. Or don't don't <laughs> yeah. get educated. Yeah, don't read. Definitely don't read the Bible. No, but then he said she destroyed her graduation dress. 
<laughs> like that was the biggest tragedy of yeah, the scenario. Like that, it was like, oh, and then she destroyed her graduation dress. That's <laughs> yeah. insane. Right. My wife sewed that dress for her. And then he says his wife destroyed all their fancy dishes and refused to cook for him, <laughs> which I just think it's funny because it's like a dress and some dishes and she yeah. wouldn't cook. And he's like, he ruined my life. <laughs> yeah. So the whole point of the trial is to say that this murder is entirely justified. That he took the law into his own hands and George Mitchell is a hero. That's what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, and the press covered it like he was a complete hero. The trial mm. was a circus. Yeah. George Mitchell was totally revered. And women were actually coming to the trial to give him flowers. Like to come and lay down flowers ne- next to him while he was... Sitting there. The judge had to tell them to stop. Sounds like a new sex cult is being birthed at the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the trial. And of you the know death George the... Mitchell's feeling it. Yeah, you know what of I mean? Course. It's like, yeah. oh, God. Yeah. yeah I th- all these guys just secretly want to be Creffield. Right, exactly. Uh, Esther Mitchell didn't hesitate to let the public know what she thought of her brother. She said her the quote that she had in the newspaper is, I hope my brother will have time to repent of his sins before they hang him. Whoa. I believe he should be hanged after he is given a chance to repent. So she's publicly stone-faced at the trial telling the press, I just hope that you know he can save himself before he dies. Wow. So she's definitely not saying, thank you, brother. I yeah, love right. you. Everyone's like, this brother uh, honored his sister. And the sister's like, I hate you. Yeah. Why did you do that, you idiot? You killed God. So the press was super forgiving. They loved him. Uh-huh. Like The Oregon papers loved him. Seattle papers loved him. They super sensationalized the whole like story. People thought he was really, really important. Uh-huh. They... The Seattle Times actually said that instead of prosecuting him, they should give him a medal, give George Mitchell a medal for what he did. Um, because, quote, if there were more men like George Mitchell, there would be fewer human beasts and still fewer broken, ruined women in insane asylums and on the streets. <laughs> and George basically didn't have a defense. He just said that Joshua had ruined his two sisters. Yeah. He said he ruined Esther and Donna publicly, so George killed Creffield to preserve his family honor. That's all. That's so weird. So, on the afternoon of July 10th, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. Damn. Not even, like, temporary insanity. Yeah. Just straight up not guilty. Wow. And... Everyone in the courtroom cheered. It was this huge thing. They're so excited. They're applauding. Uh, George Mitchell came out and made a statement to reporters. And this is the quote. I am particularly thankful that the people of Oregon rallied to my support. Those who came up here to aid me did me a service I can never forget. I want to thank the Oregon papers for the fairness they showed in telling the whole story. I am glad the Oregon people know all about it. And they and I feel they sympathize with me. It's like, obviously, dude. <laughs> yeah, and then right. Esther just takes off without even talking to him. She's uh-huh. gone. She takes off like a shot. So that's the way it goes, man. Damn. Okay. So I guess he's Superman now. Yeah. Or Batman He's, he's or Batman, Superman. He's Teflon, baby. Oh, my God. They're like, not only, they're like, you can murder that guy and we love you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so totally. Insane. You can hunt him down over state lines. Yeah. So a couple of days later, George Mitchell and his two other brothers, they're heading home, mm-hmm. right? They're done with the trial and they're hanging out in the train station. They're celebrating and waiting for the train at King Street Station. When one of them sees Esther, she's hanging out near a pillar in this really nice new outfit with a sailor hat on. And, you know, they're like 
come over here. Don't just sit there and look at us. I mean, yeah. you're here, you're lurking, but it's right. like, if you're here, you know that we're family and we love you. Yeah. And we came all the way up here to murder your boyfriend. <laughs> so they say, come over, come over. And she's pretty quiet, but she does come over and she ends up taking George's hand. And right before he boards the train, she pulls out a pearl handled revolver and shoots George in the back of the head, killing him instantly. Oh, Esther. <laughs> Sweet little Esther, the 15-year-old piano player from the Salvation Army. She shot him right in the back of the head. So she's immediately arrested. And she says she had to kill George because he killed God in the form of Joshua the second. Oh, my God. So she had to kill him in return. When you first started this story, sorry, I know, but I was like, okay, it's a cult. I was thinking the Everyone drinks the Kool-Aid. There's some weird ritualistic uh, midsummer type deaths or something. This is all just family members shooting each other in the back of the head. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, vigilante justice. Damn. And George got off. Maybe she thinks she's going to get off. She's like, I had to do it. Yeah. And then she also says that George had done exactly what he'd accused Crafield of doing. He's branding her as a fornicator, mm-hmm. you know, because she says, I never had sex with Crafield. That's what she said. I never had sex with him once. Mm. And you're telling the whole world you had to kill him because he had sex with me. But I'm a virgin. I didn't have sex. So she's like, so I had to kill you for killing my honor. You know? Wow. Okay. I get that logic. That makes some sense. I mean, it kind of does. And the papers were not feeling her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. The press was not as sympathetic to the woman. They did not like that whatsoever. They were just like, how could she take you know, the law into her own hands and her worst offense by far was not appreciating the heroic deeds of her brother. That was worse than killing her brother. Yeah. That was the worst deed. Not appreciating (laughs) that he murdered for her. So the Oregonian wrote that quote, no punishment, which the law could inflict on this phlegmatic and seemingly heartless creature is adequate for the crime. And yet so monstrous was that crime that its enormity alone has raised a question as to the mental responsibility of the murderess. So Oregon's pissed. The papers are mad. <laughs> right. They're like mad at her for worshiping a man and then mad at her for not worshiping her brother enough. You know, I think that's actually a really interesting way of putting it. That's totally true. They're like, you. we don't even care that you killed him. You yeah, just you didn't give him respect. Him. You should have worshipped him. Yeah. So now at the new trial for mm-hmm. Esther and Maude that just happened immediately after this other trial. How did Maude get involved? Well, let me tell you. Okay. They revealed their murderous plan. Okay. So basically after George's trial and the not guilty verdict, mm-hmm. they had rented a boarding house, like a room in a boarding house on Sixth and Pike, which I've been there a million times. A million times. And between the two of them, they had less than $30. But they knew they had to take out George. Yeah. So they bought a gun and some bullets and went out trying to find George. Because before he left the trial, Mm -hmm. they were kind of celebrating in Seattle for a few days. So they were around, but they just didn't know where they were. Mm -hmm. So Maude wanted to kill him. That was like Maude's deal. But Uh she just couldn't find him anywhere, which Mm -hmm. was super annoying. (laughs) (laughs) So they decided that Esther should be the one to kill him because she can get close to him. So if she can figure out when his train leaves, then Uh she can get close to him. So that's 
that was their plan. <laughs> that was it. So Esther was super, super in it with Maude. Wow. They did it together. Got it. So on the evening of November 16th, in 1906, Esther and Maude are being held at the King County Jail, mm-hmm. awaiting sentencing. And Maude is playing a card game with some other women, and they're having this great time. And then she goes back to her cell, and she takes a fatal dose of strychnine, and she dies in her cell. So Whoa. The, so this body count is just avalanching. It's popping up there, right? So now Esther's the only one who's left alive. And just as an aside... Her father, Maud's father, O.V. Hurt, honored Maud's last wishes by buying a burial plot in Lakeview Cemetery right next to Franz Creffield, mm. her husband. So they were married together. Married or buried? I said married, <laughs> <laughs> which was also true. I know. Well, I, I was like, yeah, they were married, honey. That's, that's his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I'm paying attention. Uh, no, they were buried together, and uh, the dad threw her a bone, I guess. I guess that's so sad. Like, he lost his daughter. He's like, yeah, I, I'll, I'll bury her. I mean, that's so sad. Well, I don't know. I, I think, like, if his daughter's happy, that's what she wants. I mean, I don't know. She's yeah, dead. So she's dead, right. She wanted to be buried next to this guy. It's like, all right, fine. Get buried next to the crazy ass. Like, what? Well, I don't know if that, to me, I don't know if that would matter, but I guess, yeah. I don't know. My daughter has never taken strychnine. <laughs> I don't have a daughter. <laughs> and I don't think strychnine even exists anymore. Oh, sure it does. What is it? It's just poison, man. Okay. It's like rat poison. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've actually never even heard it before until you said it just now, so. Really? Yeah, strychnine. I don't know. well you're gonna be hearing a lot about that in these muriel's murders episodes (laughs) that is a big big deal a lot of poisonings (laughs) so esther was found not guilty by reason of insanity and she was committed to an asylum the hurt family kind of gathered a bunch of the old surviving members of the cult including donna Mm -hmm. esther's sister Mm -hmm. and they settled in Oregon, not in Corvallis, because I think that had a lot of bad memories, <laughs> yeah. but more towards the Garden of Joshua, which is kind of interesting. Wow. So they're so, sort of starting a second cult? No, I think that there was a lot of healing there. I think that there was a lot of, like, I haven't read this, but mm-hmm. I would say there may be some guilt with the Hurts mm-hmm. after Creffield dies or some sort of healing. I mean, they definitely facilitated a lot of this stuff. Right. You know? So it's sort of like emotional support slash we're sort of guilty of like legitimizing this guy and now I mean, we're going to take me, care of you. That's me editorializing. That's okay. I accept that. I'm with that. But they didn't start another cult. Okay. And he took care of them, I think, financially. Uh-huh. And he was helping people kind of get back into society. Great. No one was rolling around on the ground anymore. People were stopped. They stopped doing it. <laughs> okay. Uh, and after two years, Esther Mitchell was released from the asylum and moved back with the Hurts. Wow. So they took her in. Got it. And she started a quiet life. In 1914, she remarried and she just settled down. So she was living near the Hertz and near her sister Mm. on the Oregon coast. And a little bit of time goes by. And on the night of August 1st, 1914, same year she got married, she had a nice dinner with her husband. She went upstairs to her room and she took a fatal dose of strychnine. And she was 26 years old. Oh my God. That is... (sighs) So she died too. And you were right. You were like, hey, get used to strict nine. You're going to hear about it in other Muriel's Murders episodes, you little trickster. <laughs> I tricked you. 
you. Oh, I'm going to put you in asylum. We need a sanity hearing. This lady was over here terrorizing me. Damn. Yeah. Well, that's the way it goes. But isn't okay. that crazy? That's crazy. Yeah. Like the way that that all unfolded. Yeah. Everyone's dead. I mean, not everyone, but damn, there was some, there was two straight up gunshots to the head at point blank range. And then two, I'm by myself and I'm going to take this poison suicides. Yeah. People are just like, damn, Corvallis, Oregon, man. It's got some history. Shit. Like that's pretty, that's their founding fathers. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) We're not saying anything about bad about Corvallis, Oregon. I'm disowning my wife's comment there. (laughs) And this didn't even make national headlines, this story, which I find mind blowing. Yeah. Because there was another crime that had happened at the exact same time. It was the murder of the super famous architect in New York City, oh. there's a woman named Evelyn Nesbitt who's a like basically she's the original it girl. She's like the world's first supermodel. So oh. she, so right around you know in the early 1900s, at the turn of the century, yeah. she was really famous for being painted. You know, she was maybe 15, I think, when she started doing this. She was really young. She was a chorus girl, and they're like, yeah. "You're the most beautiful woman in the world." Yeah, and they would paint her, and she was kind of famous. And this architect, Stanford White basically raped her when she was a kid and then kind of kept her. So Uh he paid to get her teeth fixed and he did all this stuff and kept her Mm -hmm. for a long time. And, um, she's, he has this famous like sex swing that she swung on. There's like a picture of her on. (laughs) Anyway, so he, her, she finally remarried. She married some guy and he hurt. She told him about what Stanford white had done to her. Yeah. And so this guy murdered Stanford white in front of a packed Broadway audience. Oh, damn. So that had just happened at the exact same time. So that was just making all the headlines. So you've got this guy in Oregon who thinks he's going to be God. And meanwhile, the bright shining light city of New York is birthing what people actually want to worship, which is like celebrity culture, like the real (laughs) gods, the real second coming of whatever is like springing up. And then they both get murdered at the same time. And the whole world is like, actually, we care about the New York the fancy guy. architect guy yeah. with the, with the beautiful celebrity. We care more about one beautiful celebrity than we do about a town full of beautiful nobodies. Well, it, yeah, it's just really interesting because oh I think this story is so crazy. I've heard the Evelyn Nesbitt story a yeah. bunch, but I've never, I mean, the Holy Rollers is a little less like I didn't know about it. I know yeah. the phrase, but I didn't right. know that it was literally a cult where people like rolled around on the ground. It's insane. Yeah. It's like so interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. I always thought Holy Rollers was like, I don't know what I thought it was. Maybe a gambling term or something. Like if you feel like you're on a hot Oh boy, streak. I'm going to teach you all kinds of things you don't know. <laughs> oh Being led down a nefarious path by a seductive uh, murderess or yeah, whatever they house call wench. Or, that's what I am. <laughs> Um, so I referenced Murder Out Yonder for most of this story. Yeah. This is a great book for old school lore. So if you love yeah. these types of like old timey crimes, this is an awesome book to check out. Murder 
Out Yonder by Stuart H. Holbrook. Also, Amira went to the library for that one, and that looks like an old copy. Yeah, I have a lot of old-ass books, man. Shit. Antiques. (laughs) That, for some reason, makes the research more legitimate in my mind. Yeah. I also referenced Baptized by Fire by Santi Elijah Holly for the Portland Mercury. That's also a really great article. Cool. And uh, that's it. (laughs) And Wikipedia, baby. Oh, my God. Muriel. Okay, well, that was a crazy story. Um so I guess the dirty little secret is everyone just wants to be a cult leader. Yeah. And I feel like you're feeling this really hard. Like this is entertaining for you. It was enjoyable. I don't know if it uh, would feel as good as just rolling all around on the ground would feel. (laughs) (laughs) But Muriel, thank you for this terrible, terrible tale of murder. You're welcome, sweet boy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Muriel's Murders. Uh, As always, Muriel does all the research and then I do all the editing and post-production. That's right. Thank you to us and y'all can just get away. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. All of uh, this information is in the show notes. If you're confused about Patreon, don't worry. We can help you with that. Just let us know. All right. Uh, I also draw and animate little cartoons uh, to go with the podcast, and that dominates our social media feed. You can check those out at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. And listen up, man. These animations are pretty awesome. We, nobody wants to see our faces. <laughs> but if you want to see like Nick's interpretation of what these episodes do to him in cartoon form, I would super, super recommend checking them out. Okay, our DMs are open. And uh, you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts because guess what? It really does help us grow. It's not fake. It's real. Listen. Robots run our lives. Yes. Just do it. Okay. <laughs> so leave us a review and share this episode with someone you think might like it. We also want to thank Mario Casolini. He does the music for this. Uh, you can find him on Instagram at Casolini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan, our amazing producers at Campfire Media. Uh, and if you want more podcasts, if you want more Nick and Muriel, check out our non-murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. We have like uh, three years worth of back episodes. Yeah, so if you really want to listen to us talk, man, there's a lot on there. Premium gold uh, in terms of us talking. Uh, All right. (laughs) Okay. Stay murdery. Stay spooky. All right, everyone. Bye. Bye.